Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Kidney Corner. Um, in today's episode, we will, we will be talking about infracranial pressure and infra-abdominal pressure, not so much about the kidney. And um, our guest today is Dr. Niha Dangayach. And I'm, I apologize if I pronounce your last name wrongly um, once no, again. You, you got it right. You got it right. Okay, excellent. <laughs> Dr. Dangayach is Associate Professor of Neurosurgery and Neurology at the Icahn School of um, Medicine at Mount Sinai. Um, and my name is Vanessa Moll. Uh, I am an intensivist as uh, Dr. Dangayach is um, and an anesthesiologist. And uh, we will be talking about ICP and IAP today. Niha, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to talk about this. You know, sometimes I'll jokingly say this on rounds, neuron before nephron, but hey, I really mean it. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And I have, um, I'm going to read um, off my telephone a little um, snippet because um, if our clinicians want to, our listeners, they can get uh, free CME credit um, for, for listening and learning um, from you, Niham. So if you're a clinician, you can unlock a free CME credit just by listening to the show and reflecting on what you on what you have learned. Just look in the show notes for the link and take 30 seconds to write a reflection on what you have learned to unlock your free AMA PRA category one credit. So that being said, we'll just jump into uh, today's podcast. Niha, um, infracranial pressure is a common, common measurement uh, in the neuro, neurosurgical or neuro ICU, but infra-abdominal pressure, I think you're one of the few um, neurologists and intensivists uh, in that um, area that actually knows about IAP and the access to um, ICP. Can you, can you just briefly uh, summarize how do IAP and ICP um, relate? Thank you, Vanessa. And, you know, I sure do hope I'm not in the minority, but uh, incidentally, it does end up happening that that's probably the last thing people are thinking about when they're thinking about a patient with ICP crisis. And in all of those schemas of the ladder where you're walking down different treatments and whether you're using tiered management for raised intracranial pressure, irrespective of what kind of schema, what kind of format, what kind of ladder you're using, I don't see intra-abdominal pressure anywhere on that ladder. Uh, and it makes me wonder, right? It is almost like a missed opportunity. Here's a pressure that we could potentially optimize. And there's some data to guide this. So before I jump into uh, into some of that data, you know, why? Why does this even matter? So we know time is brain and every single thing that we do to optimize, uh, to diagnose, to treat uh, the primary neurological injury, to prevent, to treat, uh, to mitigate secondary neurological injuries and systemic injuries is really going to impact patient-centered outcomes and overall neuroprognostication. So anything that we can do to optimize these outcomes, we must. So with that in mind, uh, just a quick recap, you know, of the fundamentals of intracranial pressure. We know about the kelly Monroe doctrine, the brain, CSF, blood, they're all sitting in this tight skull. So if something increases, uh, we are going to see effects of 
uh, effects on the normal areas of the brain. And the, the brain has this innate ability to compensate. It's going to increase venous return. It's going to increase the resorption of CSF. And your patient may not demonstrate any signs of raised intracranial pressure until the brain is pushed into a decompensated state. Now, what ends up happening? Why? Why does IAP even matter? So it matters because there is this, this communication between the venous system. The venous system throughout the body and the, the spinal, sacral plexus, lumbar plexus, IVC, SVC, they're all communicating with one another. And the fact that they're communicating with one another via this vertebrovenous spinal system that does not have any valves, the higher the pressure in the abdomen, it is going to get transmitted one way or the other intracranially. Similarly, we know that IAP, when the IAP goes up, it's also going to contribute to increase an intrathoracic pressure. And this intrathoracic pressure is going to prevent venous drainage from the brain. I just told you the brain is trying to compensate. When it tries to compensate, it's going to try to increase venous return. And now you add one more impediment to that venous return. The moment you add that impediment to that venous return, you are missing an opportunity to let the brain optimize its venous return. And this other pathway of uh, this valveless vertebrovenous system taking some of that venous congestion upwards towards the brain as the intra-abdominal pressure goes up also tells us the same, the same story because eventually there's going to be decreased venous return from the internal jugular veins back to the heart. So um, the IAP, the intrathoracic pressure, Intracranial pressure are all interrelated. So you can't really think about resuscitating the brain without resuscitating rest of the body and vice versa. So this becomes even more critical because time is brain. The higher the, higher the ICP that uh, vulnerable brains with severe acute brain injuries are subjected to over longer periods of time, some of our therapies themselves are going to lead to increase in intra-abdominal pressure. So whether it's hyper or smaller therapies, volume overload, or massive transfusion protocols in that patient with polytraumas uh, along with severe TBI, and this concept of multi-compartment syndrome then, and then trying to optimize. So if you're behind in trying to resuscitate uh, the brain, uh, and you're adding all of these different therapies only with one goal, but forgetting rest of the body, it's not really going to uh, help our patients. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's especially interesting, I think, because it's a valveless system. So the transmission is right back to the brain, whereas in, in, in a valve system, you wouldn't see it as, um, as, as, as bad, I guess. So um, it's interesting. And, um, and then talking about the valveless system, in, uh, in neurosurgical patients, when you prone the patient, you, you know, we always, as an anesthesiologist, you always make sure that the, uh, the abdomen is free hanging and uh, everything is free swinging, so to say, but you, you are not sure how much intra-abdominal pressure really still is, is prevalent or is uh, intrathoracic pressure and then gets transmitted. So I wonder if we should especially in these um, in, in the neural patients, if we should already start looking at intra-abdominal pressure, uh, monitoring it in the operating room so that we get a head start um, during the surgeries. 
I couldn't agree more. And it's not one of those measurements that's very difficult to do. But one caveat, of course, what are your testing conditions? Because if you have that one-time bladder pressure as a surrogate measure of intra-abdominal pressure, then you want to get it right. And being able to do that when your patient is sedated, paralyzed, completely synchronized with the ventilator and in a supine position. So, you know, all those test conditions need to be perfect. So otherwise, there may be misinterpretation of that data point. So that's one, one caveat for why. And when I wonder why don't people talk about this as commonly as we talk about, for example, measuring, you know, non-invasive blood pressure. Like we don't right. talk about IAP as commonly as that. That's probably one of the reasons why, the testing conditions. And then having this, you know, one-time uh, bladder pressure measurement or serial bladder pressure measurements, is that good enough? particularly if your patient is only sedated and not paralyzed or on different set, peep settings, et cetera, how do you interpret what you're really getting? So that's that's one caveat. The, the other thing that you mentioned about patients in a prone position, so even uh, patients undergoing elective neurosurgical procedures, multi-level spine decompression, or patients undergoing emergent surgical procedures like a suboccipital craniectomy for, you know, uh, for that large cerebellar hematoma, so knowing what, uh, what procedure the patient is being prone for and how vulnerable their brain already is may also help us sort of stratify which patients are going to be at a higher risk. And then, of course, all of those risk factors to keep in mind patients who are more obese or who have ascites or you know, patients who've already been, you know, resuscitated with a massive transfusion protocol or with uh, lots of volume resuscitation, you know that those patients are going to be at a higher risk of starting at a baseline that's going to, of bladder pressure that's going to be higher than normal. So you already have a vulnerable brain, a vulnerable, you know, intra-abdominal compartment. And now both of these are going to contribute to a multi-compartment syndrome with two or more compartments being involved. So in the elective surgical patients, once they're, you know, I think the timing is really hard, right? I'm no neurosurgeon, but I'm a neurointensivist. But even timing before your patient is rotisseried and flipped over and how do you get an accurate bladder pressure may be a little challenging. Uh, but in those patients who have severe ARDS and we're proning them and they have underlying brain injury, I mean, isn't this something that we should be, you know, worried about and, and measuring? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's an underutilized uh, monitoring device um, that we can, we, we should be using to optimize our patients further um, to improve our outcomes. So um Going back, so going back to the ICU now, to more of your, your area again, um, what patients do you usually measure intra-abdominal intra pressure in, and how often, how often do you do it? And do you, you talked about the conditions, uh, the abdominal compartment society says you don't have to necessarily paralyze the patient, but the patient cannot have active abdominal contractions or be basically fighting you while you do that. So, but what, what are your conditions and how do you, how do you um, talk your team into IAP measurements? How often do you do it? And do you, do you have a checklist of who you do it in? Is there a um, specific patient population that you always do it and others you, you might omit it? You know, I'm, I'm so glad you used the phrase, how do you get your team to, to do this, right? <laughs> Uh, so because the data and literature 
on IAP and ICP associations is not not as robust as we would like it to be. And that's probably one of the reasons why IAP hasn't made it to the ladder um, of ICP management. But how do I choose? How do I decide? So when I looked at, I first came across IAP as something to really start thinking about when I came across the World Abdominal Compartment Society. And I, I read a little bit more about it. And I'm like, wow, so many of my patients meet these criteria, these risk factors, and we're not doing this routinely. So I just started, you know, getting some intra-abdominal pressures ad hoc, and uh, we have an amazing, amazing nursing team, uh, and they are all for, you know, trying out new stuff and doing doing things that are going to improve patient-centered outcomes. So when I shared with them, look, I'm concerned that we may be missing uh, some raised intra-abdominal pressure in these patients. Uh, what can we do about it? So one, educating the frontline team about risk factors. And because I work in a comprehensive stroke center neuro ICU, I'm not seeing a lot of the polytrauma patients with, you know, severe TBI and multi-compartment syndrome from a polytrauma perspective. So it becomes even and when you look at some of this literature, it is it, it was described in that patient population more than uh, in some of our non-trauma uh, severe acute brain injuries. But there's some literature there as well. So with that in mind, when I look at the risk factors, so obesity, patients who have underlying uh, ascites, uh, patients who've undergone, you know, massive, uh, either massive transfusion protocol, so that GI bleeder who comes to my ICU, uh, sometimes, you know, because our model of critical care delivery, every intensivist should be able to deliver fundamentally great critical care. So it doesn't matter which ICU has an open bed, so you'll get, you know, you'll get your, your massive, uh, GI bleeder and you're doing MTP and you've got, you know, GI, GI and this patient doesn't have anything wrong with them neurologically just yet until they go into hepatic encephalopathy. So uh, just something to, you know, they, they may not have an underlying primary neurological injury when they come to our ICU, but they are at risk of developing neurological injuries. But uh, all of those patients and then those patients who have been prone for multi-level, uh, and I'm talking about pelvis to, uh, you know, occiput, uh, kyphoscoliotic, multi-level fusion, correction surgeries, and these patients end up getting tons and tons of blood products, a cell saver, and, uh, you know, in a, in a way to try to avoid MTP, but they get lots of blood products, and they've been prone. And they've been prone for hours on end. So they're at risk of developing rhabdo. They're at risk of developing EKI. They're volume overloaded. So that's another patient population. And then those patients who are getting uh, sedatives, analgesics, uh, so analgo sedation for uh, refractory ICP crisis or our patients with status epilepticus, super refractory status epilepticus who are going to be on these, you know, third line drips for a prolonged period of time you know these patients are going to develop ileus. So anybody who's going to be at risk of developing ileus and those patients who are already obese or who have ascites or a combination of the two, and now you add sedation, analgesia, immobility, it's a recipe for, for raising their intra-abdominal pressure and potentially even pushing them towards, you know, abdominal compartment syndrome. So if you're not astute in intentionally measuring, getting a baseline, trending it, we're going to miss, um, we're going to miss some systemic injuries in these patients, which may eventually contribute to worsening secondary neurological injuries. 
so those risk factors, I'll educate my frontline team. I will verbalize on rounds. Uh, please get a baseline uh, bladder pressure, and then we can trend it depending upon the patient's clinical trajectory. For those patients in whom um, who have refractory ICP crisis, and I want to use IEP as a potential modifiable target to um, to uh, reduce raised intracranial pressure crisis. Uh, in those patients, I'll ask for bladder pressures. You know, Q four to six hours, so maybe twice a shift. Uh, for that, uh, you know, 12 hour shift. So getting that Q, Q four to six hours and making sure that I'm aware of what the testing conditions were. I agree with you, Vanessa, not every patient is going to be paralyzed, but as long as they're well synchronized with the ventilator, they're not, uh, they're not very agitated when you're performing this, uh, IAP measurement, uh, you can, you can get, uh, a relatively accurate, uh, bladder pressure assessment. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, yeah. Um, you know, I think we are, in general, generally speaking, in in the ICU, you know, almost everybody has at least one risk factor for for high IAP. Right, so, yeah. Um, yeah, and so I think we, you know, we need to um, educate more and uh, and talk about it more. It's, uh, it's um, yeah, it's an underutilized uh, measure. Um, when you have when you have a patient who um, who actually has a higher intraabdominal pressure and also high ICP, what what are some interventions you would you would be doing? You will likely you will not do um and and you know a decompressive laparotomy right away at the bedside, but you'll you'll go through you know medical management before uh, before drastic measures. So what? What is your sort of, take us through your thought process, if you don't mind. No, certainly, certainly. So starting with some good fundamental critical care uh, measures. Um, fluid stewardship, I think the 7D um, strategy of thinking about fluids, you don't want to give too much. If you uh, if your patient uh, patient's trajectory is going to tell you are they in the resuscitation phase? Are, have you optimized them? Are they stable, or is it time for evacuation? For somebody who's an active ICP crisis, I know that I'm going to need to use my hyperosmolar therapies, whether it's mannitol, whether it's hypertonic saline, and I use certain you know lab measures like uh, BMP Q6 hours, Osm's Q6 hours osmolar gap, et cetera, to guide some of those therapies. And I know that some of those therapies are also going to contribute to some amount of volume overload. And does this patient have any other systemic injury along with refractory ICP crisis? A lot of these patients are also going to develop distributive shock, whether it's septic shock or whether it's distributive shock as a combination of you know, the sedative analgesic uh, drips that you're using in these patients. Propofol is fairly good as a medication to try to reduce the cerebral metabolic demand, but hey, it causes a lot of vasodilatory uh, effects as well, and your liver requirement is going to go up. And those, those just keeping, keeping that in mind as you're modulating some of these therapies. And we know that the gut perfusion, so as we're, as we're volume resuscitating our patients, as we're using these hyperosmolar therapies, how much gut edema is going to occur as a consequence 
as the rest of the body is also getting volume overloaded. So we know that the IAP is potentially going to rise as some of the consequence of the therapies that we need to reduce ICP. So getting a baseline measurement as you're walking up that ladder and thinking about, is there anything that can be neurosurgically decompressed or not? But at every step of the way, what sedative analgesic combination am I using? Is the patient having a bowel movement or not? And if they're not having a bowel movement, do they have bowel sounds? Something that I started doing more recently, I focused the abdomen to look at peristalsis in four quadrants. And uh, then I'll point it out, look, that's poop moving. So that's good. So <laughs> we, we typically have, you know, one person on our ICU rounds uh, dedicated to doing point of care ultrasound. So I'll have them, you know, focused for peristalsis. So making sure that we're not just relying on you know, bowel sounds, because it's so hard just to rely on bowel sounds to know whether your patient's, uh, patient's gut is, is uh, moving or not. And then advancing their bowel regimen. Something that I have adopted in my practice, which I don't have a lot of data for. So in these neuro, neurocritically ill patients, when they've not had a bowel movement for 48 to 72 hours, I don't just say, uh, not as a knee-jerk reaction saying, you know, just give them an enema. Because you never know, it's so hard to diagnose an SBO or an um, or a Ogilvy syndrome, pseudo obstruction uh, uh, in these patients because they are going to already be in a coma. They are not going to be able to tell you that my abdomen is hurting, and you're going to see abdominal distension as a consequence of you know various things that are happening, whether it's just benign gaseous you know distension. So I'll get a KUB. I'll look at how dilated their bowel loops are. And along with that uh, IAP measurement, you know, we'll know whether we need to help them move some of that, uh, you know, stool that is that is not moving as normally as it would have if we didn't have them uh, immobilized and on sedative analgesics, etc. So those are just some some very basic things that you can begin to do. But as you notice the IAP rising, so a couple of things that I do want to point out. Even in those patients who do not have raised intra-abdominal pressure that meets criteria for intra-abdominal hypertension, so it's not 12 millimeters of mercury or higher uh, in your uh, critically ill patients, non-pregnant critically ill patients, uh, and it's on consecutive measurements, you're getting 12 millimeters of mercury or higher, then uh, it doesn't mean that only those patients will benefit from reduction of their intra-abdominal pressure. The literature on patients in who've undergone decompressive laparotomy, I'm not talking about you know, non-invasive therapies right now, but decompressive laparotomy for reducing refractory ICP crisis has also been performed in those patients who had normal abdominal pressures. So I'm just throwing it out there that normal abdominal pressures uh, can also uh, can also contribute to raised intracranial pressure. You know, it's like the, the straw that breaks the camel's back, like you've reached the end of the ladder, you've, you've gone, you're thinking about pentobarb coma, you've done all the surgical decompression that could have been done till, uh, till that decompressive laparotomy happens. So it's very rarely performed, keeping the abdomen open for refractory ICP crisis, but it has been described in smaller cohort series um, with a successful reduction in ICP. But before we go to decompressive laparotomy, what other things can we do? So trying to be judicious in your fluids, being judicious in your use of sedatives and analgesic medications, improving the, your, your bowel regimen, making sure your patient has, 
has uh, good bowel movements. Now, if you begin to notice a trend that that the uh, ICP is continuing to remain refractory, then sometimes I will make these patients NPO. I will use low intermittent grade wall suction to give the, the bowel some rest and decompress from above. And as they're continuing to have lots of bowel movements after we've given them a good bowel regimen or a, a mini enema, then we may also need to uh, place in a flexor seal so that they get decompressed from above and below. Um, Ideally, you want to keep using the gut. You want to preserve the integrity of the gut mucosa. But when you're when you're reaching the end of the rope for refractory ICP crisis, gut rest along with just like you're thinking about a patient with a refractory shock on multiple pressors. I think the analogy is kind of similar that you've reached. You know, you're reaching reaching the end of the rope. So you want to make sure that you understand what the trajectory for the ICP crisis is going to be. You've optimized everything else and only then you're giving the gut rest, decompressing from above, decompressing from below. I will also get our general surgery colleagues engaged uh, as consultants as we see those IEP numbers creeping up, knowing that we don't need to decompress right in this moment so that all of us can get on the same page and discuss what is our trigger going to be. That's the same approach I use for um, neurosurgical interventions for the brain. I use that same kind of approach even for the abdomen. And typically they will want an image. Often these patients will be going for a CT head. I will also throw in a CT abdomen pelvis and make sure they get pre-treatment for that ICP that is not elevated in this moment. By pre-treatment, I mean a bullet of hypertonic saline so when they lay flat for their scan, they don't have an ICP crisis. Got it. Very good. Yeah. Excellent. Um, let me see what else. What else I have on my list to ask you. Um, when you when you measure when your your nurses measure the the infra um, infra abdominal pressure, um, do you do you, how do you do you have uh, educational? Uh, how do you do? You have educational sessions for for nurses or when when residents come in. Um, do you do you talk about intraabdominal pressure? And then um, you say you're measuring for every four to six hours, which is what the the um, WSEC says. What about um, what about continuous uh, monitoring? And I'm bringing that up because you and I have talked about. Uh, doing a study together and um, the, the action monitor measures continuous, continuously. Um, how do you think continuous measurements, so I guess the question is twofold. One is education. And then secondly, um, how will continuous measurement further um, not only monitoring, but also interventions? I think both of those are excellent. So I'll start first with the educational piece. The first step was for me to learn more about it. And I'm so grateful for social media and Twitter, right? And not Twitter in the form that it exists right now. I'm talking about <laughs> the years preceding. I learned a lot and I came across Manu Malbrain, uh, the International Fluid Academy, the World Abdominal Compartment Society. I don't think I would have I would have been thinking about this, this uh, concept if I hadn't 
come across some of their work. And I don't know, unless I had a patient with, you know, abdominal compartment syndrome, I don't think I would have gone and read uh, the guideline statement or their educational, you know, slide deck. So what I've ended up doing for, for my rounds, I will, invariably this happens and people make fun of, not people make fun of me. They know that there are some things that I will always bring up on rounds. Um, the A2F bundle, high dose uh-huh. thymine, I bring up IP. Like people know this and, they, you know, it's, it's like a running joke now. But with that in mind, you know, just educating everybody that, look, this is not something we think about often, but being aware is no, being aware leads to the prevention of harm. So I think that is an important, this, this is, this is an intervention that, um, this is a measurement that can help us, um, avoid preventable harm that can help us fix preventable harm. So that's how I position this. I almost think of this, you know, the, the seven D's, the A2F bundle, like these are all things that help us humanize the ICU. Now, here's a patient in a coma who is, who is developing constipation and they can't tell you that they're developing constipation and it's very, you know, it's very uh, dehumanizing. And I think it's, so both from a perspective of, yes, is the pressure becoming a pathological contributor or is it stripping away the humanity of this person? So I think it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a small measurement. It does take time. And I'm so grateful for our nurses who, you know, uh, who teach one another and who have, uh, so our, uh, one of our uh, nursing educators, um, uh, Golda Bohin, Arti, I'll give her a shout out here and our nursing manager, Elka Riley. I mean, they're amazing, right? They, when I, when I shared with them, look, I'm concerned that this may be something that we're missing in our patients. And I brought this up, you know, a few, few years ago, we said, fine, you know, we'll, that there's always somebody on the shift of the nursing shift who knows how to do this. Mm-hmm. And with all the nursing turnover, they make sure that, you know, they are also doing periodic in-services for other skills, including how to, how to get this right. I will also, so not just in patients with refractory ICP crisis, but I also get intra-abdominal pressures in all patients with shock because we're using, we're, we're resuscitating them and we're going to not be able to understand what is happening at the level of the integrity of the gut mucosa and then translocation of bacteria and we're not using their gut because they're on multiple pressors and all the fluid that you're giving them, so on and so forth. So I think, you know, it's just become part of my routine practice now. So because it's part of my routine practice, refractory ICP crisis, refractory shock, I'm going to get an IAP. Everybody knows that on my team now. So that's one piece uh, on the educational side. I think our trainees don't learn how to measure the IC, you know, the IEP, but teaching them how to interpret the number, know what the test conditions is, go to the bedside when your bedside nurse is measuring it. So you learn how it's done right. So that's one piece about education. And then, you know, uh, continuous measurement. So... My practice, you know, I believe there are two kinds of intensivists. There are intensivists who don't need a lot of data, who can make really good judgment calls and who who are, you know, less is more kind of intensivists. Like, I don't need that much data. I think I'm the other kind of intensivist <laughs> who needs a lot of data, who loves data. I love imaging. I love, you know... Uh, as many data points as I can, and particularly if there are non-invasive ways of measuring 
different kinds of physiological variables, I'm always going to, you know, try to integrate that into my practice. So with that in mind, you know, when I came across your uh, the the Acuran monitor, I'm like, wow, you know, here's a here's a potential. And Ashish Khanna from Wake Forest uh, was already doing a study, and he kindly, you know. Um, he also incidentally messaged me on Twitter about it and said, hey, you know, we published this paper. I'm like, this is awesome. And one thing led to another. And it's been, it's been um, giving me some pause. If we have the ability to, to measure and correlate what is happening with our IEP and ICP in those patients who have invasive monitors in place, I think we may be able to better optimize this variable uh, before it becomes a crisis. That's the whole purpose of critical care, right? Like we've got to prevent crisis. That anticipatory guidance is what critical care is all about. It's not about here's a crisis, let me fix it. That's awesome too. I'm not saying that's not awesome. That's amazing. But most of the lives that we save are because of us avoiding, mitigating preventable harm and providing anticipatory guidance. So having this continuous, having an ability to get continuous IAP in those patients who are at a higher risk of developing intra, raised intra-abdominal pressure or those patients who are going to uh, develop ICP crisis and also knowing what the underlying disease process or disease processes are and what is happening to both the brain and the body so we can keep track and also predict at what point in time do we anticipate the crisis is going to mitigate. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm actually I'm on your side. I like also more data, um, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm also a data nerd. And I I wonder if if you have continuous monitoring available, shouldn't shouldn't we be using it? I mean, if I have an A line, I also will be using the A line continuously. I will be using ICP continuously and not only do spot checks. Because what happens in the times in between if we only measure something every six hours? You know, what happens in the six hours we're not measuring and what are we missing? And is there anything we can optimize? So I totally agree. More more data, if it's good data, is uh, is great and gives us more information to make the right decision for our patients. Absolutely. And I, and I hope, you know, a lot of the data monitoring doesn't just remain within the realm of quaternary, tertiary, referral centers, but we're, we're able to make monitoring montages which which are not cost prohibitive to uh, low middle income resource limited settings uh, that should be the goal so creating creating monitoring montages that help us uh, help us deliver care high fidelity delivery of care to settings that are resource limited that's also one of the reasons why you know what what is the uh, when i look at different different monitoring devices, imaging, et cetera. What is the least number of monitoring devices and data that we need to make a clinically sound decision to improve patient-centered outcomes? And what is that true, you know, total physiological uh, uh, montage that you can think of for every single variable? For IAP, I almost feel like I wish, I wish we already had a way of doing this for a, uh, for a while, because even the interventions that you can make, um, you know, to play devil's advocate, people may say, why not just do that anyway, right? Just do all the good 
whether it's bowel regimen or minimizing your sedation, analgesia, I wish I could say that we're, we're perfect at delivering, you know, the A to F bundle, which is so evidence-driven that we're perfect at delivering this bundle. We're not. And with, with all the staffing shortages and new, new uh, and staff turnover, can we create a patient-centered safety net? And perhaps in technology lies the answer for creating that patient-centered safety net where we can help the frontline team members not miss something that which they don't know. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I love monitoring. I think technology can help us deliver compassionate care. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it will give, if we automate the monitoring, it will give us more more time back to our patients. So, Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, abs- yeah, totally agree. Well, Niha, thank you so much. I think these are uh, great uh, sort of last words. Um, and uh, I especially uh, want, to, want, want to agree with you on that we need to make technology and monitoring available also to low and middle income countries. And um, it, needs to be, um, it needs to be available to, to everybody, no matter where you're from and, and what hospital you are in. So um, the equity in healthcare is, uh, is uh, extremely important to me as well. So I appreciate you brought that up. Absolutely. Democratization of technology, making it accessible so everybody, no matter where they are, get the excellent care they need. Yeah, couldn't have said it better. Thank you so much, Niha. Thank you for being on the show. Um, it's always a pleasure talking to you. And um, I'm sure we'll be um, texting and talking very soon again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I had such a great time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Niha. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You too.